0: RNMD is a show about hospital relationships from the perspective of doctors and nurses. You're very smart, and we know that you would never come to a podcast for medical advice. So obviously, call your non-podcasting doctor and nurse team if you need any medical care. Oh, and we should also mention that we don't represent any hospital at all. Ever. Okay, start the thing.
1: Hello, everybody, and welcome to RNMD, a show about doctors and nurses working together in this mad world of medicine. I'm Daniel, your doctor host,
0: and I'm Abby, your nurse host.
1: And today we're gonna talk about something interesting that a lot of people have been writing in about, and finally we're gonna be discussing. Um, I think that it is applicable to what? everybody in healthcare. What is it? I don't know. You say it. <laughs> Why are you ruining the uh, introduction? <laughs> the <mood? laughs> I'm trying to get things pumped here. <laughs> You're trying
0: you know? to set the mood.
1: Yeah, I'm like Walt Claude What Walt Clyde Frazier. You know what that is? <sighs> no. You don't know who Walt Clyde Frazier is? I'm from New York, so I know who Am that we is. Am I
0: supposed to know who that is?
1: Yeah, of course. He's a Razzler and Dazzler in the Madison Square Garden. No, seriously, he is. He's famous.
0: <laughs> what does he do? For those
1: of you who are, in, are enjoying this because you know who he is. Walt. Shout out to you.
0: Something Frazier?
1: Walt Clyde Frazier. Google it, whoever's listening.
0: Why does he need two first names?
1: It's a, a lot of people have. What does he do? You want to Google it. I'm going
0: to Google it. What does he do? What's his thing?
1: Not only was he a famous basketball player, he's one of the most famous basketball commentators, specifically for the New York Knicks, who are... Arguably the best basketball team in history, <laughs> argue. especially in the yeah. last 20 years. You could argue <laughs> <laughs> that
0: they're not.
1: <laughs> she likes the Pistons.
0: Um, they haven't done
1: anything for the last Okay, okay. years.
0: I like his uh, goatee. I just Googled him. He's got... That's pretty cool. Um, okay, wait. Dan. She only judges people on Dan. Their appearance. Dan. Hi. Dan. Hi.
1: Hi.
0: Listen, we haven't done an episode of just the two of us in a really long time, and that's actually what we intended this podcast to be. I know. And you want to talk about that for a second?
1: For a second, but that's it. No more than a second. Fine, go. We have a lot of amazing guests on the show, and they, I don't want to say supersede, but they kind of have taken over the spotlight, and I think it's a good thing. I think we've had a lot of amazing discussions with...
0: It is really good. A lot of people. It is really good. Sometimes it strays a little bit from the point of like RNMD relationships, right? We have topics, which is awesome, but like the overarching theme here was going to be RNMD stuff, right?
1: That's true, Um, and we're going to do that today.
0: So we're going to do it today. We decided, yeah. So... A lot of people were asking for a code episode.
1: Code episode?
0: Codes. What is that? What do you mean? When your patient codes and then you don't know what to do. (laughs) (laughs) It's
1: scary. That is scary. It sounds very Grey's Anatomy. Yeah. Right?
0: It's scary though. Codes are pretty scary.
1: Codes are pretty scary.
0: So I guess um, Dan and I discussed this and anybody can read the algorithm, right? Like anybody can Google this stuff. There's a lot of information, YouTube video, all of that stuff. We want to talk, we're going to talk a little bit about that and about the medical aspect of it, but we also want to give real world examples, real world experience, things that we've gone through Um, for anybody who is maybe a student or has never been in a code before or has been in some but didn't really participate and feels a little uneasy, anybody can feel uneasy. I still feel that way sometimes. Um, Totally reasonable. Yeah, so I just feel like we could put your mind at ease a little bit, right?
1: Just to clarify out there, for those of you um, who are not sure, by code we mean code blue. That's the most common terminology, code blue. And it's usually when someone essentially has a cardiac arrest. That's the cool term for that. Well, not that cool, obviously. (laughs) But... um,
0: Yeah, it's a slang.
1: When people say there's a code, they usually imply someone is having a cardiac arrest. Yeah. Um, And it's definitely acceptable to feel uneasy during those times. I think... You should feel uneasy. I mean,
0: it's very scary. Someone's life hangs in the balance of your care in that moment. Exactly. It, it's very it's very fast. And, it's very
1: fast. Yeah. And everybody should be trained in it, especially if you are in a hospital or a clinical setting, because it could happen at any time. And definitely it's more common in patients who are more unstable or less healthy, but you should always be prepared for it. And that's why you always have to renew your credentials for mm-hmm. BLS and ACLS because they don't want you to forget.
0: Yeah, I mean, it's annoying, right? Like if I don't know how to do compressions by now, yeah. I mean, they should just take my job from me, right? It's annoying that I have to go in every two years, but I get it. And they do update stuff, so I get it.
1: Yeah, that's true. Things change all the time. They do. Sometimes they reverse their changes. They're like, oh, this year we're doing this. And we're like, what? <laughs> yeah. it's good I paid attention. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I would have done that.
0: Right. Um, okay, so why don't you give us sort of like the doctor angle of a code and give us some of like what you guys are trained on and what your role is and that kind of thing.
1: Sure, absolutely. The key cornerstone feature is unresponsive patients that is pulseless.
0: Right, which can be it. tricky. It's
1: could be tricky. Um, and in order to call a code, there's criteria for that. And you should find the patient unresponsive after um, trying to shake the patient or call their name. Um, and you should also check their pulse. If their pulse is not there after at least 10 seconds, that's reasonable grounds to say that this patient is having a code. Mm-hmm. And in that circumstance, that's when you initiate CPR. Mm-hmm. That's the most important thing to do is to initiate CPR in a patient that you think is, think is coding and having a cardiac arrest. It's the cornerstone of all BLS or ACLS. Because
0: of the quality chest compressions, right?
1: Quality chest compressions are the most important thing. Right? How you do it, it sounds much easier than it is. But how you do it makes a huge difference. Mm -hmm. It's not just about the strength. It's also about technique, speed, and chest recoil Mm -hmm. is actually a very important one.
0: Right. That's the most common mistake I see is the recoil.
1: Absolutely. Especially for ones who are even trained. They forget to do it because they're so stressed or anxious or excited that they want to keep pumping somebody's chest with CPR, but they're not giving sufficient time for the recoil
0: to happen. Why do you need recoil?
1: You need the recoil because, well, the whole point of CPR is that you're almost mimicking the function of the heart. You're basically pumping. When you press down, you're you're allowing the heart to contract Mm -hmm. and pump blood throughout the body. Mm -hmm. When you're releasing, you're allowing the heart to fill with fluid. Mm -hmm. So when you're allowing it to recoil, that allows sufficient amount of time for the heart to fill. And you need the heart to be filled sufficiently before you have it contract
0: or you're pumping nothing
1: or you're pumping not enough. And mm-hmm. that's not going to be as sufficient to perfuse the organs, namely the brain.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, and that's very important. Right. So if there's scientific basis behind why you're pressing on someone's chest, you're not just trying to wake them up. Right. That was kind of a joke, but it wasn't that funny. <laughs>
0: yeah. I, w- I was like, right. Like, yeah, exactly. yeah we know that. <laughs>
1: exactly. So that's the cornerstone is, Start in CPR. You mm-hmm. want to get that heart pumping. You want to get that heart moving. That's that's so Number one. important. Number one. Yeah. Yeah. You know? Right.
0: You Especially know, if you start mixing peds, one person versus two person, it gets very complicated. We're not going to go over peds. We're today. not doing, we're not, pe- yeah, we're not peds people. We're not. We're not doing that. Yeah.
1: Not to say CPR and peds is not important. It's very it
0: important, but we're not experts in that.
1: We're not. They took out the breaths took that out of the f- guidelines in the field because I remember right. they took it out they're like no more breaths
0: yeah well it was good especially I mean let's just imagine right I mean I've had patients they were found down in a train and somebody started compression only CPR and the patient was relatively okay because the person felt comfortable going up to a stranger and just doing compressions right but if you throw breaths in there people are a little more hesitant
1: Absolutely. I would be too, if I wasn't so comfortable in the medical field, I would hesitate. I
0: would too. I'm not going to go up to a stranger and start putting my mouth, especially in the age of COVID. I know. Right.
1: Whose mouth would I put my mouth? I'm kidding. (laughs) (laughs) Don't want to get into that right now. Okay. Anyway. Yeah. Okay. Uh, So basically that's, that's the concept that you must keep in your mind when you're thinking about ACLS or BCLS. Um, Definitely don't want to use this time to go over just the algorithms, like you said, and just lecture about everything. But I do want to touch on important points Mm -hmm. within cardiac arrest so that you leave this um, podcast feeling like, you know, I learned something from the perspective of somebody who's done codes. Right. And I think that's the most important is not just reading off an algorithm, is someone who's had experience. What have they learned from it? And
0: understanding the logistics of it. It is really important. And that once you understand it, even if you haven't done it, it does put your mind at ease a little bit. Like, okay, I have tools, you know. So that's what we're here to do today.
1: Definitely. Yeah. Um, if you're out on the field, I know you mentioned CPR. Most places in public, right? If you find yourself in a code situation or someone's having a cardiac arrest, try to find an AED Mm -hmm. if it's available. Most important subway, most important thing, if you're on a bus, you're out in public, um, that is what you want to get your hands on if you're in public.
0: Most businesses now require AED and it'll and they actually even require a sign. Like even at a bar it says AED available. Most places have and they're so easy to use. So
1: easy. Yeah. They make it so it's very user friendly and common sense um, to use, but still in in the heat of situation, if you're stressed, it's very difficult to figure something out that's new Mm -hmm. to you. So yeah, it's not easy.
0: Every McDonald's, every mall, every, I mean, I, I had a patient who he coded at a mall and you know, somehow lucky for him, somebody knew how to work an AED and revived him and he was okay.
1: That's awesome. Yeah.
0: It's amazing.
1: That's, it is amazing. Yeah. This is serious. You can save people's lives. Really?
0: Yeah. Yeah. In a split second, you know, and, or I mean, not to be too grim, but we, I think anybody who's been in this long enough has also seen the opposite where maybe the AED got to the person a little too long, you know, EMS, we had to wait for EMS and then they did revive the patient, but now the patient's brain dead.
1: Absolutely. There's a whole time schema about this stuff. I mean, if you have a patient who's down for more than 10 minutes, very, very high chance of brain damage and permanent damage yeah. irreversible, to yeah. be honest with you.
0: So that's why, to your point, you should ask for the AED immediately.
1: Immediately. The key, you really don't want someone down for more than five minutes because the chance of getting brain damage irreversibly is very, very, very high. So I just want to go over some quick statistics that are actually relevant and, and really interesting to me. Um, it's um, information I got from the American Heart Association uh, CPR section. Um, and in one year alone, four hundred and seventy-five thousand Americans die from a cardiac wow. arrest per year. Wow! On average, um, this is globally, um, and this is more than colorectal cancer, breast cancer, prostate, influenza, pneumonia, automobile accidents, HIV, firearms, and house fires combined.
0: Wow! That is crazy. That is crazy. That is crazy.
1: Yeah, and. Outside of the hospital, every year, more than 350,000 cardiac arrests occur. So that's a lot. It's a lot. Yeah, that's a lot.
0: Do you know how many in the field are successful?
1: So there's a lot of conflicting data about it, Mm -hmm. and it's very much geographic-based. Of course. So Western countries tend to do much better. And within the U.S., uh, there's so much variability between... um, different states. And actually, this is the fact that people love pointing out is that Seattle is the best city. Is that true? Yeah. Seattle is by far the best city for outcomes of getting cardiac arrest in the field.
0: What's their rate? Do you know?
1: I think it's around 20% from what I was reading. It's pretty good. To
0: revive. To revive. 20% success. Out of the field. That's, that still seems but low. But I've read some
1: data. No, I've, I've seen some data that's, like, way higher, though. I see mixed data. I've tried to find. Mm-hmm. Some people say 60% to me, and then no. I look into it. No, 60 was too high. 60 is too high. And then I, saw, yeah. I found another article that's at 20%, and Yeah, I couldn't find, like, a clear answer.
0: Yeah. I, what I heard, this is all hearsay, so take it with a grain of salt. Um, when I was training for uh, uh, ACLS... They told me it was around thirty percent in this region. You know, in New York City, we have a little bit more trained professionals and stuff, so ours might be a little higher. But still, think about it—thirty percent. You know, that's not a lot of people. Everybody,
1: yeah. If you ask most people who don't know much about the data, they would say, "Oh, ninety percent." Right, because
0: that's on TV what you see. Yeah,
1: it's there's actually a lot of growing pessimism about CPR in the medical field. A lot of people feel less. Optimistic about the outcomes.
0: Yeah.
1: Um, so in, according to 2014 data, nearly 45% of out-of-hospital cardiac arrest victims survived when bystander CPR was administered. Wow. It's actually not bad.
0: Wow. 45%. I, I'm impressed.
1: Yeah. yeah. So maybe the 60% Seattle thing might be right. Maybe. Because that's the average is 45%. It says if... If CPR is done sufficiently and timely, that's mm-hmm. what it's implying here.
0: Right. Well, I mean a witness arrest is is much more successful. Much more. Yeah.
1: And it says the majority of out of hospital the majority of out-of-hospital cardiac arrests occur at 18% in public settings, 69% in homes and residents. Mm-hmm. And 11 to 12% in nursing homes.
0: So that's interesting too, because, okay, if we're talking about an unwitnessed arrest, if you're in your own home, if 69%, you said, are in their own home, 70% of 70%. Yeah. So, I mean, that's a lot of possible unwitnessed unwitness arrests. So, I mean, that also speaks to why it's not successful. Exactly. Yeah.
1: So there's different rates for attempted CPR, cardiac arrest rates, and not attempted, not even. Recognize right. cardiac arrests and their de- death rates. So I think that's, that's enough for statistics. I don't know. We don't yeah. want to go too much into it. But yeah. I do want to get into the different types of cardiac arrest. Mm-hmm. Um, and there's two key ones we really, really need to tease out over here. Um, and usually when people go through cardiac arrest, the predominant etiology usually is cardiac. Mm-hmm. Um, that means there's something pathological going on with the heart, um, whether it be initiated by something else, ultimately it's the heart that's really triggering this potentially uh, fatal outcome. Um, and
0: could you mention just what are some common things that if it's not the heart, uh, if it's something else that's triggering it, like what, el- what other things?
1: Oh, absolutely. I mean, you can have a lot of things. So when you find someone with cardiac arrest, the two predominant things are either pulseless electrical activity mm-hmm. or vfib
0: mm-hmm. and
1: pulseless VTAC. those are the most common causes of cardiac arrest mm-hmm. within that at least 80% are about pulseless electrical activity and maybe 10 to 20% are vfib and pulseless VTAC. so it's way more common to have pea arrest or asystole versus vfib and VTAC. Mm-hmm. and each of those categories have their own etiologies and most likely causes for why they happen. So, within asystole or PEA, there's a mnemonic to remember for what causes pulseless electrical activity specifically. But it could also cause VFib or VTAC, but this is most commonly related to PEA.
0: What, what's and it called? It's
1: called the H's and T's. Okay. Um, and the H's stand for hypovolemia hypoxia, hydrogen ion, which is acidosis, Mm -hmm. hyperkalemia, Mm -hmm. high potassium, which is a big one, hypokalemia, so low potassium, hypothermia, and hypoglycemia. So that's about seven H's. Mm -hmm. And then you have your T's, which is toxins, tamponade, Mm -hmm. tamponade, pericardial tamponade, Mm -hmm. tension pneumothorax thrombosis, coronary or other, or thrombosis pulmonary and trauma. So don't forget your H's and T's. It could be easily easy to forget that. But when it comes to PEA, oftentimes your patient has one of these Mm -hmm. H's or T's. Mm -hmm. It could also cause V-fib and Vtac, but, um, it usually applies to PEA. That's a good one. It's a good one. Mm -hmm. It's a good one. It really helps, um, and when it comes to VFib and VTAC, generally the etiology is cardiac, actually. Okay. Whether it be ischemic, um, like they're having a, a massive heart attack, massive MI, or they have an underlying severe arrhythmia that's completely out of control, or medication induced, or there's some severe structural abnormality with the heart. Their EF is so low. Mm-hmm. You know, when, when patients have a lower than 35% EF, there's such high risk for, uh, fatal cardiac arrhythmias. Okay. Um, and that's why some of them qualify for ICDs, right? Interventricular, uh, defibrillators. Okay. So that's why you want to prevent the V-fibs and the pulseless v So how do you treat these two? Now we know we got the causes of these, uh, cardiac arrests. How do you treat them? And most of them, we know, no matter what, like we spoke earlier, you got to start the CPR. Right. That's, Number one, number one, yeah, regardless of what's the cause, if they're pulseless, they're unresponsive, this person's having a cardiac arrest, start CPR mm-hmm. doesn't matter mm-hmm. instantly, and you have to call someone to get an AED, and if you do get the pads on, get them ready, mm-hmm. and we're going to go over like the nursing and doctor perspective yeah, pediatrics. in the,
0: in the hospital code, we're going to exactly. go over that, yeah, definitely. Mm-hmm.
1: But I'm just going to quickly go over pulseless electrical activity and how to deal with
0: it. Yeah, because that idea of uh, PEA is still a little daunting to me. Um, The idea that you put the monitor on and they do have electrical activity and you're kind of, to me, what I feel like is... I don't really know if they're pulseless or not. You know, I, I sort of feel that way even still, even it's though hard. I I've seen it yeah. <laughs> and it's it's, hard. it's scary. It's scary. Yeah.
1: Well, sometimes when you're in the ICU, you have monitors, right? You know, and you know the patient. You see the patient. You know they're coding, right? Right. It's, like, it's a little uh, bit different, yeah. Different. But if
0: you're on the floor or something, it can be a little intimidating.
1: Definitely. Yeah. And if you're in the hospital, make sure the patient has full code. <laughs> Yeah. Very important. We're going to talk about that. Yeah, <laughs> we're, yeah we're going to talk yeah. about it. Their DNR, do not yeah. them.
0: This is a big problem. <laughs> this
1: is a big problem. So in pulseless electrical activity, cornerstone is CPR. And how you treat it pharmacologically is you give epinephrine. hmm most people know this. Every three to five minutes, you want to give epinephrine to a patient. And of course, you have to make sure the patient has IV access to administer the medication, whether they have it before or you're putting it while you're doing the compressions.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And this is not a shockable rhythm. Mm-hmm. If you see PEA, don't shock the patient. Mm-hmm. Very important.
0: And it'll tell you that.
1: It'll tell you, yeah. exactly. But sometimes you can, you shouldn't listen to the rhythm, mm-hmm. which is interesting because there's been times where it was a shockable rhythm. And I did shock it, even though it said don't shock the rhythm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because I knew it was VTAC. Right. And the patient was pulseless. You do shock in that situation. Interesting. Yeah, it's interesting. But what is PEA? Some people get really confused about PEA. Yes. Because they're like, "What is? what do you mean? What's happening? Electrical yeah. activity. It's tricky. If it's not VFib or VTAC and they don't have a pulse... It's pulseless electrical activity. It's mm-hmm. that simple. Mm-hmm. Even if you see sinus rhythm right. or bradycardia, or you see just like a little bit of uh, you know Picasso painting, whatever. If there's some electrical activity going on and there's no pulse, that's considered pulseless electrical activity.
0: Okay. Can I tell you real quick the nursing scaries of this situation okay you come in especially in the icu you see on the monitor that there is activity on the monitor okay patient's not responsive blah 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 okay but you feel you go to feel for a pulse do i feel a pulse do i you know have you ever been in that situation i am i feeling my own pulse oh
1: that's hard that's hard if in that situation Check multiple pulses because, mm-hmm. you know, sometimes the radial pulse could be difficult because your finger has such a strong pulse and you're you feeling your and, finger pulse. And
0: you start to feel stress. So you your, feel stressed. your own pulse goes up too. Absolutely.
1: So check the other pulses, check the carotids, check the femoral if you're so daring um, and then if you see that, listen, I don't feel a pulse in any of these areas, mm-hmm. that's that's more evidence like this person doesn't have a pulse. Right. It, it's definitely a good point. Mm-hmm. I agree with that. There's been times where I feel my own pulse because I'm so, you know, worked hyped up. up worked yeah. up, My finger has a really bounding pulse. Yeah. But that's not enough, mm-hmm. you know. Um, also, y- you take the whole clinical setting together. If they're so unresponsive, their monitor is not showing anything, you right. know this person doesn't right. have a pulse. right. Um, but it's definitely hard to tell, definitely hard to tell. And during the code, you actually have to check for pulses during the code every five minutes. Mm -hmm. Um, actually I do it every two minutes, but some of the guidelines show different things. Um, so every two minutes you want to check for pulse for 10 seconds. So Mm -hmm. you can stop CPR during that time, Mm -hmm. um, and check the pulses. And that's very important too, because if a patient does have a pulse and you're still pumping their chest, yeah. You know, you it's really can help the patient and, and keep pumping them with epinephrine, which actually is very dangerous medication. Mm-hmm. And what epinephrine does is it increases the vascular tone in the vessels, so that increases perfusion to the, to the organs, which during cardiac arrest, the arteries and the vessels, they lose their tone. Mm-hmm. So the organs don't get perfused well, so you give epinephrine. Mm-hmm. So it increases the vascular tone, gets more perfusion to the tissues, to the brain, and it also increases cardiac um, perfusion, specifically in the coronary arteries, mm-hmm. right? But that's the alpha-1 activity of epinephrine. Mm-hmm. That's the good stuff. We want the alpha-1. Right. That's why we give epinephrine. Right. But epinephrine actually has some bad bad stuff too with its beta, with its beta activity, um, and that can cause worsening tachycardia, um, and not enough and increased cardiac oxygen demand mm-hmm. so there's a lot of data out there that's you know what's the word
0: well that's why we don't necessarily use an epi drip right away right we use levo or something
1: yeah you know that's different once you achieve ROSC you know and you want to resuscitate the patient post ROSC attempt mm-hmm. you, you want to start like a presser usually yeah. that's true Yeah, you can start epi a lot of people start dopamine or whatever they can get their hands on that works on a peripheral line mm-hmm um but epinephrine is just like during the code um but it doesn't there's still a lot of dispute out there whether it's it's even doing much you know there's some data that it, it has mortality benefit but yeah. it's I
0: still mean, conflicting data we've all been in a code where well and by we all i mean you and i have been in codes where um epi 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 i mean five six seven no- nothing yeah. nothing 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 you know you're right i mean yeah sometimes you do wonder is it doing anything should we continue to give this it's
1: true you know absolutely but actually you definitely don't want to stop too early mm-hmm. i would say at least 20 minutes on patient. Mm-hmm. that's a good rule yeah but over an hour is too much so
0: i i mean i've been a part of many codes that lasted an hour or more. I mean, an hour, honestly, I feel like is maybe the norm. I feel, I feel like sometimes we have trouble letting go of the patient. And like we just, even though we know it's futile, we just keep going and coding.
1: And in some cases it's appropriate. Mm-hmm. I mean, I hate to say this, but the demographic matters. Mm-hmm. I mean, if you have a 25-year-old who was previously healthy, they have a higher chance of survival. Right. You know, as opposed to a 93-year-old yeah. with and metastatic cancer, cardiac disease. And you just broke every disease, bone in their body. They're not going to make it. Right. You know, if they've been going for an hour. Right. Um, so you need to manage your expectations. Yeah. And use that to make your decision of how long you want to keep going.
0: Um, I, th- I think this is an important time to mention that A lot of hospital systems after the code, the team will get together and discuss the code and they'll also discuss if anybody thought something could have been done differently or we, that is a really good tool to use because many times after a code, you are not only does it affect you emotionally, but you still have other patients to take care of, right? The floor doesn't stop. You have to continue your day. But by taking five minutes with the team and and as a nurse, if I have the opportunity to say, you know, I think we could have done X. And then if the attending can explain, I thought of that, here's why we couldn't because the patient has a history of Z, right? Things like that. If you know that up front, it can really put your mind at ease. Like we really did try everything we could have. If you go away feeling like there was something you could have done or we didn't try everything or you didn't discuss, do a debrief with the team then it it can really weigh on your conscience. So um, I really encourage people. I know in the moment it can feel like we don't have enough time to debrief, but I I think it's really important.
1: I think when I first started residency, I remember my first code and my chief resident at the time was like, let's debrief. And I was like, what? Mm -hmm. Like, what is that? Right. And he went over just the whole code and what happened and what could have been done differently what how did I feel after it you right know, just the whole thing and right it, and it kind of helps you with you know codes in the future what you can think of yeah what not to do
0: because in that moment you might not I, I know <laughs> everyone listening to this is a healthcare provider right um to a layman it might sound weird that in that moment you might not have an emotional response right away but you might go home and have it right? right that that's usually how i feel like in that moment i i don't i don't grieve and then when i go home i feel it because in that moment i still have other things i have to do right yeah. so that little debrief i can kind of hear what other people say and then i can reflect on it
1: Definitely. Just to touch up on V-Fib and v So we kind of went over PEA, you know, we treat it with CPR, uh, check the rhythm every two minutes, give epi around every three to five minutes. Um, and given what could cause PEA, mm-hmm. you also want to consider what's causing it. And you can treat them when they're having the PEA with, uh, you know, potassium or bicarb, or if you think they're acidotic. Um, or if they have low potassium. But with V-fib and VTAC, um the treatment's different. Even though you start CPR, you still get IV access. A big part of the treatment is the shock. Mm-hmm. You know, you shock patients who have V-fib, which is fibrillary kind of rhythm. Mm-hmm. You know it when you see it. And VTAC, monomorphic or polymorphic, without a pulse, uh, you treat it with a shock, um, and you continue CPR for two minutes, And you still give epi. That's the thing. You still give epi in that Mm -hmm. situation. Mm -hmm. Um, But um, that's the case where you can consider giving amiodarone in addition. Why? Which has become the treatment because it's an antiarrhythmic. Some hospitals use lidocaine Mm -hmm. or some of the other ones. I've never seen that being used before. The most popular antiarrhythmic is amiodarone, Mm -hmm. um, which treats VTAC even when it's not pulseless. So. Um, it's kind of trying to treat the rhythm because the rhythm is what's causing the person to have a cardiac arrest. So um, that might help. It doesn't always help, mm-hmm. unfortunately. And patients who do have V-fib or VTEC have pretty bad outcomes. Mm-hmm. They usually have a massive cardiac arrest from uh, MI. They don't do very well. Um, so I think that that was kind of a review of the main ones. Yeah. um Of the main cardiac arrest. And in the hospital, things don't always play out perfectly. Right. You know? That's why you need debriefs, right? Yeah. Like, what went wrong? What did we do? What, would, what did we do right? Actually, uh-huh. sometimes things go right and things go smoothly.
0: Uh, yeah, and that that really feels good, too, when you have a win. You know, mm-hmm. you bring the patient back. The patient doesn't have any brain damage. You're like, oh, my God, I feel amazing. The team is so great. You that's know?
1: true. Usually, the less people, the better. It's kind of weird.
0: Yeah, we're going <laughs> to talk about that. That's part <laughs> of nurses. That's the nurse's role a little bit. Yeah, that's true. get some of the people out of the room. Yeah,
1: know. we actually had a case together. Yeah. Right? A really successful
0: one. Yeah. I mean, um, you told me, you know, and you told me with zero patient detail. So I didn't even know who this person was. You told me that you were in the med surge unit and you were transferring a patient to ICU. And the patient was on a stretcher, and in the transfer, which was on the same floor, it was very close, patient had a cardiac arrest, right? Young, young this patient. This is an
1: atypical one, because this is almost like the movie type of coach. Right. The, the stuff you see in the movies. Right, we, right. Had we had a young patient in the 30s, yeah. female, hemodialysis patient, so they're definitely sicker than most people. But she started to become more uh, unresponsive, mm-hmm. uh, mental status declined, um... And we're like, she can't protect her airway. We got to take her to the ICU. Her mm-hmm. hemodynamics is uh, worsening. So en route to the ICU, I was personally wheeling her. I was an intern in my le- in my later months. Th-
0: this is how concerned you were. It was you and another doctor wheeling yeah. her to the ICU, exactly. which is again unusual. This Very wh- unusual. this whole situation was unusual.
1: Very unusual. Yeah. and it was in the middle of the night, by the way. It's like right. three forty a.m. Right. And I was pumped with monster energy drink. (laughs) Might have had a shot of espresso too. I don't know. (laughs) Probably. Probably. We didn't wear masks back then. Yeah. Can you believe that?
0: Back in the day.
1: Back in the day. Yeah. And I noticed as I was wheeling the patient that she was totally not responding. And I didn't see chest recoil. I I didn't see chest recoil and I I didn't think she was breathing Mm -hmm. as I was wheeling her. So I go see her. No pulse. I checked her carotids first. Nothing. Wouldn't respond. And I was like, what is going on? Immediately I yelled, code, you know, you have to yell it. Yes. No shame. Right. You know? Yeah. So with this case, the weird thing is um, there weren't that many people. It was just me and my resident and I was started compressions um, and there was one nurse around mm-hmm. and I told her to get the crash cart and she came with the crash cart. We put the pads on her um, and it was PEA
0: and you were wheeling you continued to wheel her or you We st-
1: did for a little bit yeah. but we stopped uh-huh. and we just did it right yeah, where we stayed right where there. we were and we just continued. Yeah. And uh we did it in the middle of the hallway. Wow. Yeah, it was crazy. Wow. Pumped her with Epi. Right. Um it might have been like a 20 minute code and she
0: And you brought her back.
1: The chief draw after like 20 minutes.
0: So, I heard that story without any details, so I didn't know who it was or where they were in the hospital or anything. I just heard like I did a code in, you know, wheel transport basically, and then, you know, did CPR. And the patient was young. I knew that. I get this patient later. This is my patient. Yeah. And you were
1: still in med surge. I right
0: was there. in med surge at the time. Yeah. I wasn't working in ICU yet. And this patient's like, she was so nice, completely alert, everything. No, no problems at all. She's walking around great. And, and she says to me, I said, you know, are you okay? Do you need anything? And she says, I'm okay, but, you know, and she puts her hand on her chest. My chest really hurts. <laughs> it's crazy. <laughs> and it kind of hit me like, oh... <laughs> It was you. (laughs) Yeah.
1: Yeah. We pounded on the chest. Yeah, I'm like, oh,
0: that's because my friend Dan was like giving you compressions. (laughs) Exactly. It
1: hurts, man. Can you imagine someone stomping on your chest? I can't
0: imagine. It would be terrible. Yeah. So I want to talk a little bit about practical, real world. What do you do? We we all watch the videos. We all know the algorithm. But really, it's different when you see it. And we're going to only talk about adult codes in the hospital for this because otherwise you go down all these different tangents and this would be like three hours long um so obviously from a nursing perspective a lot of these codes are noticed first by nurses right because we're at the bedside more so a lot of times in my experience how these codes go is the nurse walks in, the patient's unresponsive, they check for a pulse, there's no pulse, they call a code, compressions are started. Um, again, like Dan said, the number one thing besides starting compressions right away, effective compressions is is the patient DNR DNI? That's something you need to look at. And that so for a real world thing, I do that as I'm observing the patient. I'm checking for a pulse, and I'm also looking for DNR, DNI band. Like, what if I don't find a pulse, what am I going to do next? That's the best way to do it. Um, You need to call for help. You need to get your coworkers involved. They need to get you the crash cart, and you need to get on the patient and start doing compressions. The second that code cart comes in, you need to put a backboard, and you can plan that, you know, with your Um, now you have a coworker in the room and they're going to help you. Somebody else is calling the code overhead and you can plan, okay, we're going to put the backboard one, two, three, put it, and then continue compression so that you don't lose, you know, those good quality compressions that you've started. Um, while you or someone else is doing the compressions, now somebody needs to apply the defibrillator pads. I've seen codes where... Somebody didn't do that. They forgot to do that. And it really delays care later in the code. So if you're not the person doing that, you need to turn the defibrillator on, hook up the pads, get it started because now the code is being, um, overheaded and the attending is probably on the way and you need to have that set up for the attending before they get there. Just another, just another thing, um, that will also help you is if, if you're the person who's applying the pads, why don't you go ahead and grab that Ambu bag? (laughs) And again, it's like, we'll do compressions, compressions sometimes, and then nobody grabs the Ambu bag. Grab the Ambu bag. It's a lot easier for you. Um, Then that person can generally either, that nurse, hopefully now there's more than two nurses in that room, and like Dan said, there's usually a swarm of people in that room by then, Now, from a nursing standpoint, you need to have somebody documenting what's going on. Usually that's at the top of the code cart or it's in your EMR. And you need to start, um, you need to document and you need to start preparing medication. So this, this is something that scared me. Before I was doing a lot of codes, I would get really intimidated by where things are in the code, how to assemble epi. You know, the syringe is a different type of syringe than almost any other medication we use. Think really simple things like that. And it it would make me hesitant to jump in because I was unfamiliar. And really the only way to get familiar is to be involved in a code, right? So it's, it's a weird time to learn too. So My advice, if you're a new grad or you're at a new facility, get to know your code card. And I know that we're all very busy on the floor day to day and it seems like a lot to ask to sit down, but pick a day, a weekend, some some day that you have an hour of downtime. Really go through it when they're doing the code card checks. That's a great time to do it. Say, you know, once a week we take everything out, we check for the expiration dates. Volunteer to do that because I know it's a hassle in that moment, but you will feel so much more secure later because, like, I know what droids the Epi's in, I know where the bicarb is, I know where the suction tubing is, and you can grab it and then you actually feel like you're helping and you're not just in the way like Dan said, uh, does the patient have IV access? That's a big one, right? A lot of times on the floor, patient only has one peripheral IV and it's leaking and it's got a, the gauze is, you know, the, the Tegaderm is half off of it and it's crappy and it's, you know, a 22 gauge or whatever the worst possible time to try to get access on a patient is during a code, right? So if you, we're going to talk about RRTs later, but if you feel like this patient, you got a bad feeling, this patient was telling you about their grandkids, three hours ago, and now they can't remember their own name, right? Why don't you just go ahead and put a new IV in that patient, just preemptively. Go ahead and just be proactive. Put a 20-gauge in the AC, even though we hate that on the floor. Just do it so that you have two access because you're going to feel so grateful that you did that for yourself later. Look out for yourself later. If that patient codes, now you have a brand new 20-gauge in a really good spot. That's good I like that um, yeah you definitely need to set up some suction you if you're ACLS you need to um, work the defibrillator give shocks if if necessary if the attending now the attending is definitely there you want to, hopefully that person usually they establish themselves as the leader your role is to be support staff and that's exactly um that person's the leader whatever they're directing you to do usually they're very clear they're very calm and um, you can just listen to the directions that that person's giving you um getting everybody's anxious in that room everybody is uh pulse went up and you know they want they don't want to harm the patient they want to help. Um, but it's scary, right? So the best thing to do is just to try to stay calm, don't get worked up, don't shout, don't yell, don't take things personally, don't yell at anybody, you know, um, and just listen to the code leader. That's really important. Um, Also, especially if you're at a teaching hospital, you know, there are swarms, right? Swarms Swarms of people and they block the room and People want to learn, right? You got nursing students, you got new nurses, you got interns, you have medical students. People want to stand right next to the attending and watch every single thing that's going on in the room. There's a line for that, right? There's a line between people who should be in the room, should be learning, and are in the way, right? And you have to take that case by case. What I will say is I've heard nurses specifically be rude to medical students or new nurses when it wasn't necessary. There are times when they do find a corner where they're not in the way and they're just observing. Let them observe. You know, if they're interested, they want to know what's going on. Let them do that. That's actually pretty cool that they that they care to learn. But if you have uh, you know, a single room in the ICU, and you have thirty people in that room. Now we need to talk about who can exit the room because not everybody needs to be in there. And not only do you have that many people, you have all this equipment. You have a code cart. You have a uh, probably a cow in there. Also, the cow is my favorite. Actually, that's a unsung hero in that room. Right? There's always uh, well, not always, but there should be someone in the room. Looking up the labs, ordering medications, looking up health history, looking up previous vitals, things like that. That's something that I feel like we don't, that's not part of the algorithm always, and we don't always think about. But there should be somebody in the room who pulls a computer in the room so that they can place orders.
1: Absolutely. So let's say, let's do like a simulated situation with the information that we have and how things go and how they should go and what things can go wrong. Okay. What do you think about that?
0: I think that's a good idea. Real quick before we do that, I want to give a shout out to respiratory. <laughs> I don't oh, want to yeah, forget. That's true. Respiratory that's true. is my hero. Or Yeah, or in the host. <laughs> <laughs> very important. We that's love them. True. Yeah. Right.
1: Breathing is important, right?
0: Yeah, breathing. Breathing's like super important.
1: <laughs> Let's say you have an 86 year old. Okay. Right. Room 7.
0: Room 7. On my pa- eight, my floor. patient my patient. You're Abby's you're patient. you're the resident on
1: this patient. Let's call her Kathy.
0: Kathy. Sure. My friend Kathy in room seven.
1: She's My- your friend. Well, you're friends with all your patients. Yes. That's great. <laughs> and you notice that Kathy's not acting like she normally does, mm-hmm. right? She's not even responding,
0: mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm.
1: You call her name. You kind of try to shake her, but she's not responding.
0: Okay.
1: Then you check her pulse. Doesn't have a pulse. You're Uh-oh. all alone. I'm no alone one else is around. In the room. Right? What right. do you do?
0: Well, okay. Now, that is a scary situation because think about it, especially if you're a new nurse. Now you're in that room and you know that you're not supposed to leave the patient, right? You know that you're supposed to start chest compressions immediately, right? But you also have to call for help.
1: <laughs> Very true. It's scary. You can't do it alone. You can't do it alone. You can't.
0: Yeah. Um... What I would do is scream <laughs> bloody murder as I'm starting compressions. That's what I would do. Gotcha. Yeah. Get somebody's attention. Do Again, it's the same thing I was saying is, you know, the algorithms, they'll usually try to put stuff in order. This is step one. This is step two. This is step three. Real world, we're doing a lot of this stuff at the, at the same time. That's what I would do.
1: It's important to know that everybody has their own role, mm-hmm. right? Right. Whether you're a nurse, you're a resident. So... Where we work, at least, the residents tend to run the codes. Right. If Abby found a patient and she started a code, it will be announced and everyone will swarm to the case, including residents. Um, and
0: and the, and the nurses who are on the floor will come in and help you. Floor. Yeah,
1: absolutely. Um, and it's... The nurse's job to do certain things and it's the doctor's job to do certain things and everyone kind of needs to know their roles Mm -hmm. and sometimes it's not clearly delineated and that's when problems happen. Definitely. Miscommunication happens um, and it's chaos. Yes. We've all seen it. Yeah. And that's when the code leader comes in. Mm -hmm. That's the importance of what's called the code leader. That's the person who's in charge in the sense that they designate who does what Mm -hmm. and they make sure it's getting done Mm -hmm. Um, and that helps facilitate the whole thing, make sure it doesn't get out of hand mm-hmm. um, and everyone's doing what they need to do, right? So um, those, so a senior resident walks in and they have to announce to the room, listen, I am the code leader. Right. That's the key. Right. And once that is announced, everyone should acknowledge it and not turn it into a thing because we all know the life of the patient and the code is more important. It's more anything. important
0: than ego, definitely. Yeah. Um, One thing that you mentioned and I just want to bring up, this is specific to your facility right yes because we had so many people i did a poll on instagram of who runs the codes in their critical care units 97 percent of the people who responded said that the nurses run the codes i my mind never heard of that my mind was blown so i think we're in the minority actually what
1: but i've worked in multiple hospitals all of them were doctor run codes
0: I don't know. That's what people were saying. So, I I they well, they have code teams at a lot of hospitals and a lot of them are nurse run too. Interesting. They're like critical care trained nurses who respond to the codes.
1: I mean, I've heard of it, but I didn't know I didn't know it was the majority. Me
0: neither. Yeah. So, again, you you have to base it off of, you know, what what your hospital does. Yeah. Yeah.
1: So they're in charge of it like they decide what the patient gets. I
0: mean, it actually makes sense. Well, so technically, ACLS, right? I'm ACLS trained as a nurse. Technically, I'm allowed after that to run a code. Like, that's what that training says, right? Whether your hospital allows it or not is a little different, right? So um, they, there's a lot of places... Um, I'm assuming smaller hospitals too, non-teaching facilities, I'm sure. You know, when you have a, a boatload of residents who are able to respond to every single code and you have 10 doctors rushing you, that's great, but not a lot of hospitals have those resources. So instead of having every doctor from every floor pulled from their patients and coming to one space, they'll have a designated code team that is waiting for codes basically and they you know i don't know where they sit or what they do in the off time but they they're the ones that immediately respond and they're the ones who run the code and i think a lot of times it's mostly nurses maybe one doctor and you know who's maybe the leader like you're saying yeah i
1: wonder wonder what the outcomes are
0: i wonder nurses
1: versus doctors
0: i wonder if there's a difference
1: so the code leader tells the interns at our hospital to do the chest compressions and there's also an intern with the Ambu bag who's giving the breaths. Um, and then there's a second-year resident um, who's checking the pulses um, periodically. And there's always someone who's keeping track of what um, is going on and what's the timing of everything. That's very important. So someone always has to keep track of um, the timing of the code, when what was given... Um, And when's the next event? Someone has to be calculating, listen, is it a pulse check right now? Um, Is it time to give epi? When was the last epi? How many doses have we given? Um, And that's someone's job, and that should be designated as well.
0: A lot of times that's a nurse, right?
1: At our hospital and many hospitals, it's oftentimes a nurse. The nursing managers on the floor do that. Mm -hmm. Um, But it's the code leader's job to make sure that's being done and the information's accurate. Right. Um, And... What are some of the other important things that nurses do?
0: Um, Here's one more thing that uh, maybe I should have mentioned that nursing needs to do. Okay, this is something that gets lost. If this patient just coded, right, and you're on the floor, a floor code is much different than a critical care code, right? If you are on the floor and it's not your patient, you're in there helping, you're hooking up suction, you're recording, whatever, the, the nurse who has that patient is probably heavily involved in that code because they know the most about the patient, right? But what's the next move for that nurse? You need to think ahead. You need to be proactive. That patient's getting transferred. If they're on the floor and they just coded, they're getting transferred, right? So you need to take it upon yourself to say to the nurse, hey, you need to go give report. Give, give that, nurse permission to step out of that room. Because a lot of times we take a lot of ownership over our own patients and we don't want to leave the room, right? So it's good if you have a colleague to just say, hey, you need to go give report because critical care cannot accept that patient without report. You can't expect the nurse in the ICU to take that patient without report, without knowing what you just, what just happened. So Say to your colleague, listen, I got this. What are you doing right now? I got it. You need to step out and go give a report because otherwise it will really delay care for that patient.
1: So that was a straightforward kind of code situation that we went over and it kind of was in line with what we mentioned earlier. But sometimes it's not so clear cut. And usually in these situations, a lot of different hospitals call what's called an RRT or rapid response team. And this is called when a patient's status changes for the worse or just much different or there's something happens that's concerning for the patient, an immediate and emergent action needs to be taken. So that's when you call an RRT So, the hospital.
0: So Dan, RRT is something that I struggled with a lot as a new nurse. I struggle with RRT a lot as a nurse because like you said, it's not as clear cut, right? You have to really use your judgment and you have to trust your judgment and your instinct on that patient. And you can be wrong. You could be wrong. You could you could call an RRT and you could say, you know, I'm concerned about this patient and the the entire team comes to evaluate the patient and the patient's fine, you know? And that's that,
1: okay though. I think that it's better to be safe than sorry. Definitely, it doesn't matter what definitely department you're in, what level of your education. You're in. I think it's okay.
0: Yeah. A hundred percent. But it is intimidating, especially as a new grad, when you might not trust yourself as much and you might second guess, you might say, well, maybe there's something I don't know, you know? Um, so it is really scary, but to Dan's point, If in doubt, call, 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 always call because you will way more regret not calling.
1: What are common situations where you see people call RRTs?
0: So the times that I've called, a lot of times it was for the times that I've called and I was on the fence about calling was mental status changes. And that's obviously one of the biggest reasons why you should call, right? But a mental status change is not always clear, right? The person baseline might be confused. absolutely, And then they're more confused. And it, it does take a lot of evaluation to figure out, is this a deviation from the baseline change or not? And you can, in that moment, feel a little unsure if you should call or not. Um, but again, if in doubt, call. And uh, that's... My okay, here's my best advice for avoiding feeling that way. The first thing I learned um, as a new nurse, that's exactly why when you first come in and you're doing bedside report, which bedside report is extremely important. That's why you need to do a proper and thorough evaluation no matter what's going on. I don't care what's going on in the beginning of your shift all hell is probably breaking loose like it always is. You need to go in the room and properly assess your patient because if you don't know how they were when you came on shift, you have no way to tell if there's a deviation, right? Absolutely. So and I actually had, I want to give you a real world example where that saved my ass one time. I had a patient that she was confused. Baseline, that was her that was her baseline. And I got that on report. Um, she was mostly Spanish speaking patient, very little English. Um, she had come in for a little bit of altered mental status. Um, I think she had, she had DKA and then she got transferred subsequently to the floor. I came in, I did a very thorough evaluation on her and, Within, I would say, I walked out of the room, I told her I was going to get her pain meds or something. By time I got back, it was 15 minutes maybe, she was completely different. She was completely altered. But... I got that on my report. Right. So if I hadn't went in at the beginning of my shift, I would not have known the difference. I certainly w- because she was still talking. She was still looking at me. Her, her eyes were tracking. Her vital signs were normal. Um, and I called RRT because of that. The doctors, again, they had just got on shift. This is the night team. They didn't know her. They said she's baseline confused, which is true. She came in for altered mental status, right? And I was saying, I'm telling you, this is a deviation from what I came in on my shift. And they listened to me, they were very receptive to that. <laughs> By time the man and nursing manager got in there and everybody came in the room, she had a droop on the left side of her mouth. Her eye, you know, her eyelid was drooping down. Um, they took her to CT and she had a brain bleed. And they had to transfer her to a different hospital. She had to have emergent surger- surgery. Um, so if you if you are, are scared of being put in that situation, that's my best advice read about the patient if you even if you have to come in twenty minutes before your shift get your assignment and read about the patient and then the first thing you do is go in and evaluate them.
1: That's so important. Yeah. I like that case. That was a good that was a good example.
0: Another thing that I would mention, something that's really important and I don't think any facility that I've ever worked at does enough is mock codes. We should all be doing mock codes. We should be doing them together. I know the residents, you guys do them, and we do them separately, but we don't ever do them together. And I, I really think doctors and nurses working together, right? Yeah. That's our whole thing. By we- the
1: way, this is the mad world of medicine that we were talking about. <laughs> <laughs> yeah.
0: Yeah, that brain bleed was mad. Yeah. yeah. It's crazy. <laughs> yeah, it was mad bad, bro. Okay. Wow. okay so i would just say if anybody from administration's listening or advocate for yourself we should be doing mock codes really
1: it's important it's a very important very
0: important yeah um okay last thing we're gonna end on dan let's do some drama
1: okay let's drama
0: drama drama so we had a lot of people write in from instagram okay we had a lot of different points of views about how they handle codes the controversy that I saw was some of the nurses saying that doctors don't want to be involved in codes. They leave it to the nurses. They're not around. They're doing nothing. Okay. On the flip side, a lot of the doctors said, especially at teaching facilities that they'll show up to a floor code. None of the nurses even started compressions. Um, You know, we're not going to comment if we've seen this stuff or not because we're not going to throw anybody under the bus. Um, So if somebody feels intimidated, doctor or nurse, I could see maybe it looks like they're not participating. But um, again, that's why it's good to advocate for yourself. Ask your um, nursing manager, ask your attending, like, Hey, can we do mock codes? Can we practice? Can we talk to the doctors about this? You know, can you one-on-one, Hey, uh, we in the ICU, at least we have certain residents and interns for a month. Um, maybe talk to them preemptively before you have to run a code with them. So we had some people from Instagram right in. So I want to get your thoughts. I'm going to read a couple things to you and then I'm going to get your reaction. Okay. A doctor responded and said, you can't run a code without both, but there are more nurses on a given floor so than doctors. So absolutely, with numbers, nurses are running the codes. Again, that's interesting because that's just not how we do it. It's that's so weird. Yeah, it's a lot of people said that, though. Another doctor wrote in and said, I can just say in my experience, it's been very difficult to get an education about what to do in a code As a medical student in the ICU, we responded to a code on the floor and I intentionally wanted to go and participate so I had a better idea of what to do and how to be helpful. I arrived and a nurse literally stood in the doorway with her arms crossed blocking me from entering. That's crazy. So the problem runs deeper than residents just watching and not wanting to participate. Again, this person saying, I wanted to participate, but... No one would let me in the room.
1: Nurses wanted to be in charge.
0: Yeah, and maybe not just even be in charge. Like we said before, sometimes people are in the room when they don't need to be, in and, and they're actually in the way. Right. That's true. It makes total sense. And if we're talking about a med student, yeah, maybe a nurse is a little less apt to let a med student observe. Right, mm-hmm. but. If, if you're able to, or you can show them a spot in the room and say, hey, this is a good place to watch, you know, where they're out of the way. Put them in a corner or something, you know. That's fair. Also, it's how you do it, right? Maybe there isn't a spot in there for them, but you could just say that to them. You don't have to stand with your arms crossed. Mm-hmm. <laughs> okay, here's somebody who who is one of those code nurses, like we were talking about, the code team nurses, Um the rapid response nurse says <laughs> when when i arrive the md throws up in his hands and says thank god you're here and walks out leaving the nurses in the rt <laughs>
1: <laughs>
0: <Holy shit. laughs> that's interesting something important to mention too while if you're acls certified you can technically run a code all nurses a team of all nurses can do that the thing that we can't do is decide when to stop that's that's important to oh, mention really? we're not allowed to decide when to stop a doctor has to do that yeah a doctor replied and said, in my experience, the worst run codes are the ones where people have terrible attitudes and are passive-aggressive. I really agree with that. What's,
1: what's better, passive-aggressive or aggressive-aggressive? Aggressive,
0: because we live in New York. We like we prefer aggressive.
1: You like aggressive-aggressive better than yeah. passive-aggressive? Yeah, I'd
0: rather know what's happening. What do I'd you think? I'd rather
1: not have either aggressive. Yeah. Maybe just like, chill the fuck out. <laughs>
0: I'd rather know that there's a problem. Oh, well, yeah, of course. Than somebody thinking it and rolling their eyes or giving me attitude passive aggressively or saying stuff behind my back. I agree. You need
1: to you need to be straightforward.
0: So somebody okay, someone brought up this topic. I wanna know how you feel. Traditionally, I don't know if doctors realize this, but traditionally, new grads, new grad RNs go to med search floors and There's debate over whether that's right or whatever. We're not going to get into it. The point is that that's what a lot of hospitals do. They put you on a med surge floor. They require you to learn the, quote, basics, and then they'll let you specialize after that. Okay, so the question was, how ethical is it to have a group of new grad nurses on a med surge floor, patient codes, And then who, from a doctor's perspective, is also running the floor? Interns, right? So you have a group of brand new nurses, brand new doctors running these codes. What's your opinion about this?
1: I mean, I think there should always be a senior person there. It depends on your definition of running, you know. I think they're more part of the code, but they're not running the code. I think there should be someone who's experienced there. Mm -hmm. and kind of making the bigger decisions and
0: what's again what's your de- what's your definition of experience is it a, a second or third year resident
1: i mean that's better than a resident that's better than an intern right but they're also not like they may not be proficient or experts either especially in the middle of the night
0: we also need to mention that none of what we talked about in this episode applies to the ed <laughs> that's oh, totally, different, totally. totally different totally different thing totally. yeah we this is not about the ed we're talking about floor and icu An experienced RN wrote in and said that she thinks that the best role for learning is recording, which I totally agree with. You get a bird's eye view of everything. um, And here's a couple of things that this um, charge nurse pointed out. Um, It's best if the primary nurse is actively participating, which we mentioned before, Um, during codes... A shitload of people come to the bedside and know nothing about the patient. Too much staff, actually, is generally in the room. Um, So her role, especially if the nurse is a new grad, she'll say the primary nurse is the nurse that needs to be in here along with her, and she can assist the primary nurse. I think that's a really good... I think so, too. You don't need six nurses in that room, you know? Of course. Um, the most successful codes, this is something that you said, that she's seen had a clear had clearly defined code leader and roles. Um, most in her unit are run by the MICU fellow or an attending who will respond. Um, and beyond that, she said a lot of people don't like to speak up or say who is leading. But we like that. Nursing, I think, likes that. We like to know who's in charge because we're scared sometimes it's a scary situation. So we want to know like, who do I listen to in this situation? You know, Definitely. Um, and then her last tip was, know where your supplies are, especially on your crash cart, there are so many delays sometimes because people are running to a supply unit to get supplies, but they're actually on the cart. That is such a good point. I've seen that time and time again. People are sweating and literally running up and down the hall when there's tubing in the in the cart. There's IV kits in the cart. Like, save yourself. Again, go through your code card.
1: So important. Yeah, it really is. Well, I hope you guys learned something today or found this entertaining. I mean, this is by no means. A replacement of formal education. Yeah. This is you Adjunct. Know, mainly for entertainment purposes, having a nice discussion mm-hmm. um, and maybe learning something. But uh, I hope this makes you guys think a little bit about codes a little bit more, um, find yourself learning more and delving more uh, deeply into this uh, topic.
0: And I think, um, this is one of those topics that we could have and we probably will have multiple episodes. Maybe in a few months we'll do another one of these. So write us, I guess, is my point. Write, write in rnmdpodcast at gmail.com or we're on Instagram at rnmdpodcast. Um, Write us and, and let us know your thoughts. Let us know if you thought this was helpful, not helpful. Um, we're doing this for you. So let us know. We, we need your feedback. Um, also, if you can like and subscribe, that really helps us out. That's a free way you can help the podcast um, or you can share it that you, you know, you enjoyed this episode. You learned something from it um, that helps us out a lot. So um, we appreciate you and thank you so much. Um, thanks to Dan, who's finally able your schedule is a little free, a little thank more you. free now.
1: Thank you guys for tuning in. That's my favorite line at the end. Thanks for tuning in. This is a 1955 radio station. (laughs)
0: Let's tune out. Thanks for
1: tuning in to RNMD.
0: Let's tune out. Let's like turn the knob off. Turn it off. Right? (laughs) Dorky? Dorky. Yeah. But I'm into it. If you're
1: watching this and you've listened to this episode till this point, you are dorky. I'm just letting you know that in a good way.
0: You you're one of five. I guarantee. Don't it. say that. No, no, that's not true. But I do look at the algorithm at the end of these episodes, yeah. and it's like towards the middle, we're still at like eighty percent of people, and then like you know a fourth of the you know episode is left, and it'll kind of drop off a little bit. People are getting tired, and then I always wait to see who's at my sign off, and it's like ten percent.
1: Well, of course. <laughs> People. If you're still listening, you're probably, it's still playing, but you're not really listening. You're maybe at the gym or you're driving.
0: If, if, yeah, they're trapped. <laughs> they're you're trapped. Tra- Okay. If you're still listening to this, you're trapped in the car with the sound of our voice and you yeah. can't reach for the dial right now. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Sorry. Deal with it. Deal with it. Also, or you just are like this content, in which case I love you. Yeah. Like, I love you.
1: Yeah. Te amo. Te amo.
0: Te amo. Right? Yeah. Mi amore.
1: Mi amore. <laughs> All right. Thank you guys so much.
0: Thank you guys so much for listening. We really appreciate it. Um, tune in next week. Tune in. Get your dial out. Tune in. Okay?
1: Defibrillator. <laughs> That's what you call it. Defibrillator. She calls it defibrillator.
0: Defibrillator. Yeah.
1: The whole episode, I was like, it's defibrillator. Defibrillator. <laughs> I don't want to say anything because I'm saying defibrillator. I'm like, what is defibrillator? This? We're not astronauts.
0: No, cuz the patient's in Fib- V-fib.
1: fibrillate.
0: But it's V-fib, oh my so God. you defibrillate them. Dun, 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 dun. <laughs> <laughs> All right, guys. All right. Bye. Bye bye. 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 bye.